Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm going to tell you a story about the future. It's eight years from now, and there's a candidate running for president of the United States who's an independent, who everyone in the country as a whole is supporting, 90% approval rating. He's not Republican, he's not Democrat. Everyone is excited, energized, hopeful about this candidate. We believe in this candidate. Stands for real ideas, for real thoughts. Doesn't disparage anyone else. But the candidate is Jewish. And he's elected as the first Jewish president of the United States of America. And Pesach comes along. And what does he do when Pesach comes along? He calls his mother. He said, Mom, it's your son, the president of the United States. It's almost Pesach, and I want you to come celebrate Pesach with me at the White House. And the mother says, you know, I don't like to travel so much anymore. It's very hard for me in Florida to get all the way to Washington, and uh, my sciatica acts up on the plane. He says, Mom, I'm the president of the United States. I'm going to send Air Force One down to pick you up in Del Rey. There's going to be a car to get you in your house. You're going to fly all the way to Andrews Air Force Base, and then from there, you're gonna get in a helicopter and it's gonna land on my lawn and you'll have to work 20 steps and you'll be right at home. You don't have to worry about anything. And there'll be nice Marines, handsome Marines that can carry all your luggage. Ugh, oh, you know the way I keep Pesach, you know I like to change dishes and I don't know what the dishes. Mom, there's a whole room in this house called the dish room and I'm gonna get kosher for Pesach presidential dishes and you can have Pesach here, you can keep Pesach. It's gonna be great, don't have to worry anything about the changing of the dishes, it's all gonna be brand new and kosher. Ugh, but it's such a pain, mom. I'm the president of the United States, I'm asking you, please come for Pesach. So she hems and she haws and she haws and she hems and she agrees and says, you know what? Okay, I'll come for Pesach. A couple days later, she's doing laps in the mall with her friend Sadie, and uh, Sadie turns to her and says, so Mildred, what are you doing for Pesach? And Mildred says to Sadie, you know my son, the doctor? She says, yes. She goes, I'm going to his brother's house. <laughs> Jewish mothers are a unique breed. And dealing with Jewish mothers in particular can be a really tough thing to do. I find myself, as a lot of others to do, especially since the help of medicine and health in general has allowed our parents to live a lot longer than their parents and their grandparents ever did, to find many of us in a wild, disparate age, some at 25, some at 45, some at 75, within the midst of what we call the sandwich generation. The sandwich generation simply means that we are sandwiched in the middle, taking care of our young children and taking care of our elderly parents. You see, when I was born, I was born to one grandmother who was living. The other three grandparents in my life had already predeceased me, some by up to 25 years. So the whole notion of what it is to have a grandparent or a sandwich generation really didn't exist the same way for my parents, but it sure does for me. My kids are blessed to have three living grandparents. For a while, they had four. And I find myself in between the needs of my children and in between the needs of my parents. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the pull of those needs. And when I get lost on how to address those needs, 
I always turn to a source, or a set of sources, I should say, and that's our tradition. And the sources in our tradition often help us with delineating and dealing with this whole idea of how it is that we care for our parents. So what I want to do this morning is share four very brief, short, br very brief and very short stories from the Talmud about different relationships that children had with their parents. And I'd be curious to know from you later at the Kiddush which paradigm you thought you were a part of. The first is the story of Rabbi Tarfon. Many of you probably know that name and Rabbi Tarfon. We just talked about him at the Seder a few weeks ago. So Rabbi Tarfon loved his mother very, very much. And we're taught in the Babylonian Talmud of a story that he would come home from teaching and from work. And the first thing he would do is he would get on the floor on all fours and let his mother step on his back so she could get into bed easier because it was too high for her to get into bed. This was an act of absolute selflessness. And he felt it was just one very small thing that he could do to help his mother, that he literally would have his mother step upon him so that she could sleep at night. What a gorgeous, gorgeous story of a child looking after their mother. But if you take Rabbi Tarfon, he has a very different approach to how he treats his mother to, so let's say, Rabbi Yishmael, something that resonates a little more with me and perhaps with you too. You see, Rabbi Yishmael's mother thought that Rabbi Yishmael was indeed right below God, and it was a very thin line. And what would happen is, Rabbi Yishmael would come home from work, he would come home from teaching, and Rabbi Yishmael's mother would say, honey, you worked so hard. Let me cook for you, let me wash you, let me take care of you, what can I do for you? And Rabbi Yishmael would say, mom, I need some space. He said it in Talmudic language, not exactly as I'm paraphrasing it. And she got so mad that Rabbi Yishmael would not let her, as the mother, dote upon him and love him and adore him. So what did this good Jewish mother do? What only a good Jewish mother could do. She went to work at the yeshiva with all of his other rabbis and teachers and said, you need to teach this boy, my son, to let me adore him and take care of him. If not, I want him to be fired. <laughs> not making the story up, it's from the Talmud. And basically, he got rebuked at work saying, your mom loves you, she's the one who wants to take care of you. Let her take care of you. Let her wash your feet when you come in. Let her fix you dinner. Or let her prepare your bed. Whatever it is that needs to be done for you, let her take care of you. And Yishmael wanted his independence. He didn't want to put that upon his mother. A totally different approach from that of Rabbi Tarfon in the Talmud. And I imagine that we have two sets of mothers in here, and all of us have mothers that probably fit one paradigm closer than the other if we just offer the two. And of course, we all know about a mother who might show up at a friend's locker and tell them how to treat their friend or go into work and tell them who they can see and what they can have. We all have parents that kind of engage themselves in such a way. So this act by Rabbi Yishmael's mother doesn't seem oh so foreign to us. But it's an interesting dichotomy of difference between the two modes of thinking of both of these moms. But what if you what if you switch that out a little bit? What if you, you change it to another story that happens in the Jerusalem Talmud? See, the Babylonian Talmud was written in an area for those that lived in Babylon. The Jerusalem Talmud has some different stories but similar themes. 
and based, of course, from Israel. And there's a story of two separate children and how they responded to their parents. And I want to tell you a personal story uh, that I know I've shared before that will grease the skids for understanding this story. When my daughter was born almost 12 years ago, we went to this amazing pediatrician in Manhattan. His name is Dr. Michael Levy. And this guy is like the pediatrician's pediatrician, just a lovely, smart, wonderful man. You used to have to wait a long time to get in his office, but when you got in, you knew why, because he'd spent 30, 40 minutes with you. And I walked in there with my wife and our three-day-old baby for the you know, initial meeting, and he does all the exams and everything, and he's looking after us, and he's more worried about us than he is about this kid. And we're shaking, and we're worried, and what if we do this, and what if we do that, and whatever, and clearly this was not his first barbecue with brand new worried parents. And finally, in the most calming and loving way, he puts his hands on our shoulders and he said, the most important thing you can do for your daughter is to love her. If you love her, everything else will happen naturally. And it was like we were able to exhale at that moment and breathe, like, oh, okay, I get it now. And we breathed and we took her home and we did some things right and we did some things wrong, but we knew that we loved her and it served as a compass for us in our intentionality. So now look at the Talmud from the Jerusalem era and the story of two different rabbis looking after their parents. One had a father who was very hungry, so he brought him into his Shabbat dinner, and at the Shabbat dinner, he served him what he was serving everyone else, which was a very spicy chicken. Now, those who are elderly know that their stomachs cannot digest spicy food the way that someone younger could, but he didn't really care. He just said, Dad, this is what we have to eat. Eat it. Now, one could look at this from a 30,000-foot view and say, hey, he's fulfilling a beautiful mitzvah. He's feeding his father. But one can look at it from 5,000 feet and say, yeah, but he's feeding his father spicy food that's not going to sit well with him and probably make him sick and give him digestive issues, and he doesn't even make a special dish for him when eating. He doesn't seem to show any deference or love. Interesting juxtaposition. Now flip that to another story that happened in the Jerusalem era of a man who ran a mill. Now, mills did all types of different things. In this case, this mill would make wheat and flour. And in making wheat and flour, basically, these were people who had to be starkers, strong, heavy people, push a big stone around and smash this mill until it became sifted and they could use it for food. And this man owned a mill where he employed different people, and he took his father and he put him to work in the mill. Now, you might say to yourself, what kind of man takes his father, an elderly person, and puts him to work in the mill? But it turns out he put him to work in the mill because the father needed to work. Not with his hands necessarily, but with his heart and with his head. He felt useless when he wasn't doing something. So he brought him into the office. So from 30,000 feet, you would look at that example and you would say, oh, what a terrible man putting his father to work. But for 5,000 feet, you would say, what a beautiful gesture of keeping the dignity of his father. When Dr. Levy told me and my wife the most important thing you have to do is to love your child. What he dialed into for all of us in that story was the notion of intentionality. That even if the act seems awkward or weird or different, if you love your child and you're doing this act out of love, then it's pretty obvious what you should do. 
Meaning, if you love your, your parent and they have dignity and you want to maintain their dignity and they want to come back to work and they want to have some value, then put them to work. And if your father can't eat spicy food, then don't feed him the spicy food because, of course, you have to love him, but don't think I'm just giving you food and I'm doing a deal. So I share that with you because I ask, when you're dealing with a parent who is aging, who is much different than a baby that can't express themselves, except for to tell you that maybe their diaper is wet or they're hungry or they're uncomfortable. We can't know what a baby's thinking and we have to take our hopes of what they want into play. What do we do when a parent is aging and they have wishes and we have wishes and perhaps the two fight each other? What if they wanna stay at their home in Florida but you think it's in their best interest to stay close to you so that you can look after their welfare or their health? When does your view trump theirs? What if they wanna stay home at their home in Florida and you live here in New Jersey and you just don't want them living there not only for their welfare and their health because it's too expensive for you and your siblings to keep flying down there every month and it's much more of a financial burden than it is one of an emotion or of worry. What trumps? What if it's up to their dignity to say, I never wanna live in a nursing home? Do we have to absorb the responsibility of bringing them into our home? Or should it be something that we absolutely do without question? There are two cases in this shul of people who brought in-laws, many more than two, but two in particular, people who brought an in-law, someone to live in their household. In one case, one family tells me it was one of the most galvanizing acts they ever brought into their home, where a grandparent was living there for the children, a parent for them, and they saw this notion of what it is to look after and to care and have another generation, and how it was a sense of glue that brought the family together. In another household, it literally led to divorce. So what is the right prescription? And is it the right prescription for every person? I share all this with you because we find ourselves in the sandwich generation, not only dealing with these choices for our parents, but also as parents. What do you do when your high school kid doesn't want to be engaged in anything Jewish, but you want to force them to either take a trip to Israel or to take a particular class or to go to Hebrew High, what do you do? Do you force it down them or do you let them graze as they choose? Do you give them that rope to show that their Judaism is a choice and we're gonna give them that choice or do we force it upon them to say, this is part of our core ethic? Because no matter what choice we make, at least in our house, we stay up at night worrying about did we choose the right path? If we force this upon them, will they reject it later? If we leave it to them, will they come back to it? And it applies the same way when dealing with that other generation. It is so hard to dial in and know, should we be the child that lies on the floor that allows our parents to step on our back, whether literally or figuratively to get into bed? Do we be that parent who says, you take care of yourself and stop looking after me? And don't turn me into a deified source of life? Are we someone who feeds our parents whatever we're serving regardless of how they digest their food? Or are we someone who puts them to work because it keeps their heart and their soul engaged and gives them the dignity that they need to stay alive? These are the conundrums that the sandwich generation is faced with in parenting and in looking after our parents. For us, it is demonstrative of that challenge we feel in our lives. 
One of the best movies I've seen in the last five years was a movie called Nebraska. Raise your hand high and proud if you saw that movie. For all of you who don't have your hand up, go see it. It was a brilliant movie, and I don't mean to steal the thunder of the movie for those of you who have to see it, but the whole notion was about a man who was elderly and very simple, lived in the Corn Belt, and this man is getting older in life and starting to lose his memory and his wit. And it's clear that it's slipping. And he gets a letter in the mail from the sweepstakes that says he has won a million dollars, like many of us have gotten before. But he believes it's true. And in order to redeem this sweepstakes, he has to go back to a city where he was born in, where he was from, where he was raised, and he collects the million dollars. And what it's really about for him is going back to that city and proving to all of them that he has arrived, that he has made it, but in his own way, in the way in which he's engaged. And he has a son, and the son has to figure out whether he stops the parent from saying and doing these acts and saying, Dad, you're acting crazy, stop it. You're embarrassing me. Or whether he helps his father on this journey because it's needed by the father as a sense of fulfillment. And what the movie is really about, in my estimation, in my Siskel and Ebert moment, is to tell you that it's much more about the son than the father. It's much more about his struggle of how it is that he relates to his parent between what is a source of embarrassment versus his opportunity to fulfill a dream and be a part of history and legacy. And that is the struggle in which we feel in part of that sandwich generation. There's a story that's told in lore about a, a boy whose grandfather comes into his house and his parents start to look after him. The grandfather has Parkinson's, he's a widower, he shakes terribly. And every time they're at the table together with a nice tablecloth and china, the grandfather who shakes inevitably drops the china and breaks something. He spills wine all over the gorgeous tablecloth to the point where it becomes an enormous expense and almost a liability whenever they have company or they have a meal. So the family in a moment of absolute frustration, the children bring a wooden bowl for him to eat out of always. And they make a separate table out of a card table in the corner for him to eat with a plastic tablecloth. And that's how he eats so that they don't have to lose any more china or spill any more on the tablecloths. A couple months later, the kid comes home in fifth grade and he has done this great project for Mother's Day. What did he make? Well, he took a piece of wood and he made a bowl. And the mother said, what did you make a bowl for? He says, so when you become old, this is what you'll eat from in my house. The parents paused and they realized that the way that they were parenting their parents was indeed going to be the foreshadowing of how they would be parented too. And perhaps that's the most important lesson. Perhaps that's what Dr. Levy was actually telling us. Perhaps what he was saying is, if you really love your parents and if you really love your children, show them. There is absolutely no blueprint for how to do this. There is absolutely no manual for how to raise our kids and there's no manual for how to take care of our elderly parents. But the one prescription we can have, the one area that points us in a direction is indeed to love them. And if one parent needs us to lie down so that they can get into the bed and they can step on our back and another parent needs to dote us and love us and cover us and adore us, then let's open our hearts to some of that love. And let us realize, instead of putting the onus on them, 
Let's put it on ourselves. Could you think of any greater gift to give our mothers on this Mother's Day or our fathers on the Father's Day to come? I bless all of us who are having or given the incredible gift of having mothers in their life. And I have three in particular. I have my amazing mother, thank God, who is still alive. I have the most amazing mother-in-law in which I married into. And my kids, I believe, without hesitation or reservation, are blessed with the most incredible mother in the world. Not perfect, none of them are, but amazing. Because what they all have in common, the thread that draws them all together, is no one loves their kids more than those three women. And the best thing we can do for them on this Mother's Day is to find out what their needs are and to dial into them. That's what the Talmud teaches us. That's what history teaches us. We know it's not easy, but if we direct our heart to loving them, then I believe it's achievable. May this Mother's Day be a day of blessing for all of us who are blessed with mothers. And for those that aren't mothers, may you inspire others to do so. And for those that are remembering mothers, may you remember them with the love in which they gave us. Amen.